When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. Before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to the sponsor of this week's episode, Who Gives a Crap? Who Gives a Crap is determined to prove that toilet paper is about more than just wiping bums. They make all of their products, toilet paper, tissues, bath towels, with environmentally friendly materials, and they donate 50% of their profits to help build toilets for those in need. And get this, they just released a limited edition toilet paper, the coloring edition. Now, I've never had a limited edition toilet paper in my life, but this is amazing. They worked with iconic artist John Bergerman to create limited edition toilet paper wrapping designs that you can color in. It's hilarious and amazing and absolutely worth checking out. Who Gives a Crap is offering Sounds Good listeners $10 off their first order with the promo code SOUNDSGOOD. That'll actually buy you a lot of toilet paper. To get toilet paper delivered to your door, make a difference in the world, and support this podcast, just go to whogivesacrap.org slash soundsgood and use the discount code SOUNDSGOOD. One more time, that's whogivesacrap.org slash soundsgood with the discount code SOUNDSGOOD. Who gives a crap? Good for your bum, great for the world. All right, now here comes the show. There are few organizations in the world that have made a lasting impact like Charity Water. My guess is that if you're listening to this right now, you've probably heard of Charity Water. They're one of the most admired and trusted nonprofits in the world. Renowned for its 100% donation model, bold storytelling, imaginative branding, and radical commitment to transparency, Charity Water has disrupted how social entrepreneurs work while inspiring millions of people to join its mission of bringing clean water to everyone on the planet within our lifetime. And behind the impact and the global influence of Charity Water is my guest today, Scott Harrison. I've been following his story since I was in high school and can say that he's one of my biggest heroes. In fact, longtime listeners of the show will know that I've had him on the podcast before, and I felt like I knew Scott's story really well between having him on the show, speaking at a handful of conferences alongside him, and giving a speech about Scott at my high school graduation. But then I got an early copy of his new book, Thirst, a few months back, and I started to dive into it. And really quickly, I realized that I had barely scratched the surface book is full of so many incredible stories that I'd never heard before. And so I knew that I had to get him back on the show. So I'm not going to give anything away before the conversation, but let's just say if you haven't heard Scott's story or if you haven't dug into his new book yet, that his story is radical. It's wild. It's transformative. And it's one of the grittiest tales set out to prove that it's never too late to make a change. Aside from being the founder and CEO of Charity Water, Scott Harrison has been recognized on Fortune's 40 Under 40 list, Forbes Impact 30 list, and was ranked number 10 in Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. I'm Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people 
who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Sounds good. It's not your typical three steps to success podcast. We don't host this podcast for the sake of leaving you with bullet points on self-improvement. We deeply believe that our lives are more complex than that. And so we show up here on Sounds Good to ask big questions, dive into nuance, and learn from each other's stories. I'm so excited for the ways that hopefully you'll be impacted by Scott's story. So let's just jump straight into this conversation. Dude, welcome to Nashville. So good to be here. Uh, you and I got to see each other in Atlanta like two days ago. Yeah, which I didn't realize was a four-hour drive because I would have driven it rather than flying it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I was driving back and I realized that I hate driving because oh, it's really? just far enough with traffic that it's annoying. Uh, and I hate flying because okay. in New York City, right? We're never we're never driving. So totally. We're never in cars. We're walking everywhere. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. It was, it we was really stormy. We could have I could have given you my plane ticket, and I could have driven in exactly. your car. Exactly. We could have just carpooled or something, too. <laughs> how's the book going? How's the, how's the kind of book tour, book launch thing going? Uh, it's funny. I saw the first Amazon review today. What? They and, can do that now? Well, they <laughs> give it to this group of pre-readers. Got it. And the reader got an early copy, like an, an early, early copy that actually I've changed the ending since. And it was a good review, <laughs> but there was this line in it where it says, you know, I, I really like the book and it was moving. I felt like he made the ending a little too much about charity water. And I actually jumped in and like my author profile, I'm like, you were totally right. And we rewrote the ending. That's hilarious. That's she so was good. right. The, the first ending was, was, it actually was a little too self-serving. It was like, uh, okay, hey, join us, you know, join this movement. Yeah. And we kind of really, I mean, I, I really changed it. I just, I, I hated it and I, I felt rushed. And Well, that's cool that the, the one criticism was something that you actually caught on to before it was released. And my team too. We, yeah. we just, we all knew it and hated it. And then we really lobbied with the publisher, please let us change it. I mean, it was, it wasn't a significant change. Um, it was a few yeah. pages, but it totally. really, it made a difference in the tone and just, yeah. this, it, it's more generous now. Good, good. Um, I got a pre-release copy and I powered through it, man. It was so good. I really loved it. I finished it this morning, and uh, did yours have really, blue really on good. the front, or did my, you have the blue? Letters? Literally, I've got a PDF. Okay, that's you have the on my then. Kindle. Let okay. me show you how uh, how ugly this is. I mean, it's it's beautiful, but it's oh got, no, mine has got were... the cut marks and everything oh, on it, bro. I'm sorry, you no, were having to like to it, pinch your fingers to make it big. It's really funny. Yeah, I mean, it was super worth it. I loved it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really, really vulnerable though. That's the, that's the thing that I was really taken aback by. I feel like I'm a Scott Harrison super fan. I was kind of counting back the years to try to figure out when I got connected with Charity Water and your story. And I think it was probably 2010. Um, so we would have been what, four years old, four yeah. years old. Um, yeah, yeah. It must've been probably 2010. Um, and so I feel like I've been around for a long time and, you know, we've talked on the podcast before we've, I've been to a bunch of conferences you've spoken at and there was stuff in here that I had never heard before. It's fresh. Well, that's, that was the point. I mean, when you're in, in some ways it's a 10 hour speech, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm always asking for more time. I feel like I have so many stories that I want to tell. And the longer the organization uh, is around, the more stories you want to tell. And of course you can't tell them all, Yeah. but it's, it's funny. Sometimes someone will say, um, 
you know, hey, we'll, we'll make a big honorarium to Charity Water if you'll come and speak for 30 minutes. And I'm like, tell you what, I'll do it for free if I can have 60 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I'm trading, you know, money for time because if, if you, you can just, I think you can do more yeah. with a, a, a longer length of time. I mean, a 20-minute speech often just sounds like a pitch. Yeah. You know, you can't really take anybody on an emotional uh, journey. Right and and yeah. having ninety nine thousand words ninety nine thousand it's, it's a in the first the first draft was one hundred fifty thousand <laughs> so there was so much fifty percent of the book got cut wow what was a third of the book got what cut. were some of the things that got cut that you still liked well there was some stuff on I tried to tell every story on the mercy ship <laughs> <laughs> I mean this this period of my life of going to Africa for the first time uh, photographing 50,000 or taking 50,000 photographs and taking uh, pictures of all these patients so many of them had stories that I wanted yeah. to tell and they were they were so unique so um, I got to tell a few I, I wanted to tell you know 10 of them yeah totally totally um, in fact let's just kind of bring it back a little bit to the beginning for people who haven't heard your story um, maybe we can kind of bring people through some of your story and we'll dive deeper into some of these parts that I was hooked on. I've got some questions for you. Oh, cool. Um, but you grew up in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, what What was... I always say I was born in Philadelphia, but now I've just fully embraced New yeah, Jersey. Yeah, I mean... Because yeah, <laughs> I was to. technically born in Philly. Because most of your life was spent in New Jersey. Most of my life was spent in New Jersey, yeah. So I was born... Uh, Dad was a business guy. Mom was a writer. Uh, they lived in a in a high-rise at the time in, in Philadelphia. And then... Uh, when I was four, we moved to New Jersey to reduce his commute from, uh, let's say, an hour to 22 minutes. I remember it was exactly 22 minutes. Wait, was he going from Philadelphia to Bordentown, New Jersey? Yeah. Okay, so wow. His his office was actually in New Jersey. Got it. Uh, and you know that we didn't know this. They they found this house. It was this kind of drab gray house. It was a good school. It was in a cul-de-sac, and we didn't know it at the time. But this house had a carbon monoxide gas leak. The uh, company PSENG had installed a defective heat exchanger and it was in the middle of winter so I was at school my dad was working and my mom was dying basically Mm. uh, trapped in this energy efficient house breathing carbon monoxide and uh, on New Year's Day 1980 she walks across the bedroom she collapses unconscious and we there's a long series of blood tests and finally they discover what made her sick and it was carbon monoxide and the, the crazy thing is they had not yet invented the personal detector. Man. I mean, now we go to Home Depot, right? We, these things are, I don't know, nine ninety nine, and we, we have them everywhere. But this, this wasn't even an option then. Were there a lot of other people potentially around the country who were experiencing the same thing as your mom, and that's why the inventors, or that's why the detectors were invented? A lot of people died. Man. Um, I, uh, you know, a lot of people know Ted and Chris Anderson from Ted. His daughter actually died of carbon monoxide. So I think my mom, in, in many ways, was fortunate to to not die. I mean, yeah. the, the, it was almost like the her passing out, her symptoms were the canary in the coal mine before just, yeah. you know, we, we all could have died. Man. So interesting in this, too, my, my dad had invited the gas company a couple times to check out whether there was any problem. And oh, they'd really? come and they'd said, everything's fine. Ugh. Like, hey, you people are crazy. So he just, he'd suspected it. So a plumber friend of his actually was the one that ripped out the heat exchanger and found these little pinhole cracks where it was escaping. And my parents had just become Christians. And I remember they, at the advice of their Christian doctor, had decided not to sue the gas company 
And he said, do you want to be bitter? Do you really want to be involved in in an extensive legal battle? My dad said, no. I think we took $1,250 as a settlement. And again, not knowing that this would really define the rest of my mom's life. In hindsight... Do you agree with your parents' choice? On, oh, yeah. On, okay, cool. Absolutely. And, and they have really never – my, my dad really believed that God would take care of their health needs and their financial needs. And, you know, my, my parents are not by any stretch wealthy, but they have always had enough. Um, and their their appetite was very small. You know, my dad drives a car that's 35 years old, and, you know, they live in a very modest yeah. house that they bought. And we, we never – they never regretted that. That's um, good. And if they – you know, if they had made millions of dollars, they would have just given it all away. Yeah. Man. How old were you at the time? So I was four. Okay. So you probably don't remember your mom before she got sick too much. Only through photo albums. Only. Okay. It's interesting. And she how was an amazing mom. Yeah. I, I almost feel like I do. She yeah. would take me to the zoo. She would take me to the Franklin Institute. There are all these pictures of mom and, and you know, me on these different adventures. Yeah. That's beautiful. And things really shifted. Uh, after she got sick, I remember from the book, uh, tinfoil lined room is what she had to stay in. Uh, people would come over, but they had to bathe with certain kinds of soap and couldn't use perfume. Yeah. Um, oh, it was weird. I just have all these mental pictures of the just these weird uh, visuals of childhood. So what what happened to her? Uh, was her immune system just shut down. So her immune system from this point on became unable to process anything chemical. So chemical, uh, soap, perfume, uh, car fumes, hmm. fabric softer. That was like kryptonite for her. Really? I mean, if you got fabric softener Even like around the floral mom, stuff that feels like you're smelling the outdoors, it's all Oh, chemicals. this would, this would you know, debilitate her. And her Man. symptoms would be hypertension, vomiting, uh, rashes. Her face would, you know, swell up and become, you know, very red, uh, migraines. And so if, if this is your, um, your dilemma, then you just basically create an isolated world for yourself and you create a safe house and then even safe rooms within that safe house. So, uh, we would wash our clothes many times in baking soda, ivory soap. Ivory was, you know, the thing in our house. (laughs) We would use detergents that people had never heard of that were hypoallergenic. She couldn't use makeup. Um, I talk about this in the book, but there was, I just remember this thing of, of reading. So she had a problem now with the print. So she couldn't sign a legal document Oh wow! because the ink would make her sick. So my dad would have to air out these, you know, so just imagine I'm giving you a form like, Hey, yeah. you have to sign a lease or something. Well, we'd have to air that in the backyard first and we'd hang them with clothespins on the, <laughs> on these clothes racks. And then, you know, she would wear these charcoal masks, sometimes connected to oxygen, uh, she would uh, wear cotton gloves so as not to actually touch the ink. It was mm. just bizarre. Man, and that's got to be changing your childhood significantly. You didn't have any other siblings. I didn't, and they wanted a bigger family, so they miscarried what would have been my sister. Uh, they, she had a name, Julie, uh, and then the, the, the illness just stopped family planning. So, yeah, I, I really went into a caregiver role and started taking care of mom, doing the cooking, doing the cleaning around the house. Did you, because you were so young at the time, did you know that you were living a little bit of a different life than your peers? Yeah. My, <laughs> my mom was weird. And, and, you know, people, so she spent so much time outside and people thought she was homeless. I mean, people would, would think uh. she was, 
she was a homeless person because she'd be sitting out with an, an umbrella in the middle of winter with six layers on and down jackets because the house and the heat would make her sick. So, it, yeah, I definitely knew uh, I was not a normal, you know, it wasn't a normal family. Um, I will say that my parents tried to give me the most normal life despite all that. So I played soccer and baseball growing up, and I was active in my school plays. You know, my dad would be doing his best to drive me around town to, to the different activities. I guess what was different was inside the house. It was just weird. Yeah. And, you know, I remember... My mom at one point was on a rotation diet, so she could only eat one food. I think it was every six days. So, oh, so wow. breakfast would be a bowl of walnuts, and lunch might be spinach, and dinner might be cod. But you couldn't have any seasoning on it. And I remember I would have to prepare her cod, so I would nuke this fish <laughs> and put it in the microwave, and the, you know the whole house would just reek and you know just congealed nastiness. Uh, so it, it was just it was just a really weird childhood. My parents loved each other. My dad, looking back now, was just this incredibly honorable man who, uh, I mean, people expected him to go run off with a secretary. I mean, it was that mm. kind of thing. He was he was this ex Navy guy, um, super smart, just you know, handsome, tall, uh, funny extrovert, and his life just kind of his social life just ended. And he would come home every day, and he would just take care of mom. So he he really did such a good job, uh, and and I, you know, I don't think I appreciated it fully then, how hard it was mm. for him. As new Christians who are who are kind of figuring out this whole faith thing, that's got to be pretty challenging to be like, yeah. oh, you're God's like Job, take care of this thing, <laughs> and then year after year, it feels like he's not, maybe? I don't know. Yep, Job was definitely a a book of the Bible that was (laughs) read many times. And they, uh, you know, my mom just kept, she just kept this hopefulness and this optimism. That's remarkable. And she would try so hard not to get bitter, not to become resentful, uh, to really thank God for the trials. I mean, it, it was extraordinary, really, when you think about, how hard it was and how it would have just been easy to check out or, or become angry. Did her health get gradually better or gradually get worse? Like how, how does that work with chemicals and all these mm-hmm. things? The long line over 40 years would be improvement, but it would have peaks and valleys along the way. Got it. So there would be uh, maybe seasons, call them six or you know 12-month seasons of improvement, and then there would be a setback. Um, I'll give you one example. Things were going really, really well for a couple of years, and this is much later. This is 25 years on. And then so well that they were actually able to invite people to stay at our house. Wow. And then one family comes over, and I kid you not, they drop a bottle of cologne next to the mm, air vent no. in our house. And the central air takes this cologne and basically distributes it through the whole house. And she's set back years. So, and and just an accident. I mean, this this was just somebody who came over and, you know, I mean, I I spilled things all the time. (laughs) Wow. So it it was, it was more like that. And I think when you're, maybe it's, it's similar to someone who's gluten intolerant who would have food allergies. You just get really good at avoiding the things that make you sick um, and, and not putting your body or in a circumstance where, you are going to shut down. So she just got really good over time at avoiding those things. We knew when to go to the beach when the uh, when the 
the breeze was coming off of the ocean and not from land. I mean, weird stuff like that. That's so interesting. The way the wind blew would dictate her health. And they became weather experts. (laughs) (laughs) When you were like 18 or 19 or whenever you left the house, kind of how were you feeling about the state of your mom's health? Were you feeling hopeful? Were you feeling like things were never going to get like what was kind of your thought process? There was a sense that things would never get all the way better, um, but they were manageable. Um, And manageable meant mom couldn't really go out, but every once in a while she could. Um, so, so she could every once in a while go to church or she could go uh, during a season where she was feeling better to the supermarket. But then there'd be another season of isolation because of some setback that would happen. So I think it's just something you get used to living with, yeah. you know, with maybe with any debilitating illness over time. Uh, so when I moved to New York City, I, I don't think I was hopeful that things would get either better or worse. It was yeah. just uh, probably more of the same. Yeah. And what was the status of your relationship with your parents, too, then when you moved away? I it, I know that you went and kind of became like the the prodigal son, but like yeah. the, the, the not returning part at this point. Yeah. Um, but did you still have a relationship with them or? I, you know, it, it became more fractured in the teenage years. So I, I went from, you know, the good kid playing in Sunday school and uh, playing by all the rules of, of church and Christianity. I, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't sleep around. I didn't cuss. And then, you know, call it 15, 16, 17, I start kicking against the goads a little bit and, and definitely rebelling. You know, I would say I was at the library when I wasn't. Uh, and and that that was hard for my parents. And the more rules they put in place, the more freedom I wanted. Hmm. And it eventually led me to New York City uh, in a band, you know, and I had hair down to my shoulders and I made a, <laughs> I made a bunch of rebellious decisions. Um, but I did keep a relationship with them. So it was, it was almost, you know, at, at some point more of a taunting relationship. I'm not really proud of it, but I would almost call them and say, hey, I've been partying for days. <laughs> um, you know, just did a bunch of coke for the first time. Wow, it was amazing. Nobody told me that. Huh. It, it almost feels like your parents' choice to keep you in their lives instead of like just kind of burning it at the first time that you yep. do something wild, that could have been the thing that opened up your your need to maybe taunt them a little bit to almost test their love to some degree to see if they would keep on holding on to see if I could shut them down yeah <laughs> or it, shut the door and, and they it never sounds did. like it yeah so I would come and see them uh five or six times a year so despite uh me at, at this point moving to New York City becoming a club promoter working at 40 different nightclubs over a decade uh picking up the smoking the drinking the cocaine the gambling the pornography this you know all, all the addictions I still would come home and see them <laughs> and I would kind of clean up you know I'd have to go outside on the deck to smoke uh, and, you know, I'd be, I don't know, probably sneaking a bottle of Dewar's, you know, in the backyard. <laughs> so funny. That's really remarkable that you were able to maintain that much of a relationship. I didn't realize it was like five times a year. Yeah. So you were in New York and you were kind of taking on the club scene and you were really growing in that. And from the book, you shared so many more details than I'd ever heard before. Yeah, a lot of um, people don't know how that actually works. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the economics. Of... Yeah, yeah, because I just, I heard like nightclub promoter and I, I really didn't, I don't know what that means at all. But also I just assumed it was, you know, I know that it, I knew that it was a long time, but I just thought that it was, I didn't realize that you were so 
talented at it is maybe what it is. Like you were really good at doing all this nightclub work. And it sounds like you had a sense of craft and art and expertise you were bringing to the table. I mean, it's kind of like an event planner. Right? Yeah. You're, you're throwing <laughs> parties. Our parties just happen to be between midnight and 4 a.m. <laughs> For me, partly it was just a sense of boredom. You know, mm. I needed things to be new yeah. uh, in order to continue doing them. So we would just look for ways to make these parties fun. I mean, we would throw these crazy pool parties and we would turn a club into a beach scene and we'd go buy hundreds and hundreds of beach balls. And, you know, we'd bring DJs in from Paris. We would, we would just always try and make it feel special. Yeah. Not just like, oh, I'm going to the club to hear the same DJ play the same songs. And by the way, we didn't always achieve that, but there was at least a desire to keep um, keep moving the needle forward uh, and keep elevating the, the party or the, the sense of excitement. And what were the people in your life like at the time? Like, I know that there were people who were bad influences on you. Were there also people who were kind of pulling the other direction? No. Okay. No, were you was... the, best, the best person in your group? No. Okay. <laughs> no, it was, you know, so it's, it's a scene that's run by young models who are coming into the city who want to make it in the fashion industry. And they're all living in models' apartments. So you might have 10, 15, 19, 20, 21-year-old models living in a two-bedroom apartment. Oh, wow. uh, All hoping to make it. And then you have uh, a bunch of guys who are either trust fund kids, guys meaning, you know, in their 20s or 30s, uh, or bankers, or or a lot of, there was a profile of, of someone that might work at a Goldman Sachs or a, you know, a Citibank. And the the scene works as these two things come and collide. Got the it. money meets the girls. Yeah. Money, well, and it's like money meets ambition. Sure. And, uh, you know, but the, the girls have the ambitions, mm-hmm. but the guys are just seeing them as girls. That's so interesting. And so your job is essentially to create atmospheres that bring both those people to the table mm-hmm. and then you just bring in more and more people every time and then you make a cut of that? It's curation. Curation. It's really curation. And you need some celebrities in there. You need some, you know, you definitely need some famous people so you can be in the New York Post page six and people are writing about the party. Uh, but yeah, you're you're taking just a percentage of the total revenue. And I, so mm. the, the nice thing is that your asset light, you don't have to deal with the liquor license. You don't have to deal with the cops. You don't have to deal with the payroll and the rent and the $4 million build out of the club. Someone else does that for you. You bring the people. Yeah. And in a way, the minute the club is, becomes cold, you just move on to the next place and you take everybody with you. Yeah. So it's, it's a little mercenary, really. That's so interesting. It's remarkable how much of your current job at Charity Water uses some of these skills in a very different way. But it's curation. It's creating new, innovative things to get people talking and energized and excited. And make sure we don't become bored. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean truly. There's still that sense of, you know, if we, were do, if, if we were leading Charity Water the same way as we were leading it five years ago, I think myself and the execs and the leaders, we'd say, yeah, yeah, it'd be less exciting. We would we'd be less excited to come to work. It's interesting because you almost would never recommend that anybody follows your life path. But at the same time, your life path allowed you to be who you are today and what and do what you're doing today. Yeah, I've I've said, uh, you know, in some way, if you looked at me on paper before I started Charity Water, I would be 
perhaps the least qualified <laughs> person in this country of you know a few hundred million people. Um, as it turned out, though, in some other ways, I was uniquely qualified to to do what I'm doing now. You know, 12 years later with Charity Water, and uh, I, again, some of those same skills of it's really I think the the core skill is promotion. I'm a promoter. And I was promoting decadence and debauchery and drunkenness and drug use. A lot of D's there. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I was able to kind of have a 180-degree radical turn and promote generosity and compassion and empathy and clean drinking water for every human being alive. So it's really just, you know, it's still storytelling. Yeah. It's still promotion. They're just on opposite ends of the spectrum. Hmm. And so what's the thing that happens in the middle of that? Like, what and is the, the other thing? Let me just for one yeah. second. The other thing is you're still kind of saying come inside. Yeah. Come inside the door. Walk past the velvet rope, right? And, and in, the, in the previous decade or the first decade, it was about turning people away, right? The longer the queue outside the club, the more people wanted to get in. So it was this sense of exclusivity and only letting the beautiful or the rich people in. But inviting everybody, right? Just having that gate. Saying actually we're gonna we're gonna we want ten thousand people to come up, but we're only gonna let five hundred people in, and we're gonna turn away those nine thousand people. So this is really still inviting people to come in to be a part of it. Who wants to join us? The party inside is amazing, right? The party, the clean water party, the generosity party, <laughs> the compassion party. But we get to let everybody in. Yeah. So so we get to if ten thousand people turn up, ten thousand people can attend the party. Is there any sort of <laughs> Like part of me is like, but it seems like it does make sense to turn some people away because it, it looks impressive. You know, like, is there any way? That, <laughs> I don't know if that's even a dumb question, but like, is there any aspect of not an even know? Maybe I'll just cut that out because I'm I'm no, just exploring I, I, in my mind. Well, I, I think no, I, I want to keep that because when uh, I, I might have actually talked about this in Atlanta for the first time in a while, um, and I'm not sure if I wrote about it in the book, but at our first event for Charity Water. 700 people came to a birthday party. It was my 31st birthday party. And in some ways, um, you know, I wasn't even aware of the things. There was no, I wasn't like, oh, let me, you know, have a redemptive edge party where I turn the nightclub into good. (laughs) I just was like, I want to raise some money. Let me invite a bunch of people to a club, get it donated, get all the booze donated. And instead of putting $15,000 in my pocket, we're just going to take $15,000 to northern Uganda and do as many water projects as we can. But I remember that night, um, there was a guy who came who was a, he was a marijuana dealer. And he, uh, he put $500 in the, there was a big plexi box and the donation was 20 bucks so 99 percent of the people coming paid the minimum 20 bucks to get in to the party to the open bar and he gave 500 bucks and he said this is the first charitable donation i've ever made in my life (laughs) but i know where the money's going and i know that it's going to help someone Mm. and you know that might be someone that a traditional charity would want to turn away right that your money's no good here Um, i mean now marijuana is in a very different place than it was uh, over a decade ago but I think we've always really tried to invite yeah. everybody. And not everybody gives with the best intentions. I mean, we know that. There are people that are giving to Charity Water to be seen. There are people that are giving um, to impress loved ones or impress you know, future <laughs> boyfriends or girlfriends. But that's okay. I mean, who are we to turn totally. them away? And maybe yeah. they'll be redeemed in the process. Maybe mm, that's by, good. I, I really believe that you know, through radical generosity, really through any form of generosity, we are bringing people closer, um, 
I, you know, I'll say it. I think we're bringing people closer to God. And, you know, the, the charity has never been a religious charity. I've really kept my personal faith separate um, from the organization and the way that it operates. But for me, I believe that generosity and compassion and giving, it, it improves people's hearts. It softens people's hearts. It's, it takes them from selfishness and greed and moves them in a different yeah. direction, in yeah. a more positive direction. From inward direction. to outward. Man. From out, yeah, exactly. That can be so transformative to to bring people in who otherwise may not be accepted, especially into the charity world and the social impact world. Man, you almost got killed. In your in your book, you talked about <laughs> I mean, a bunch of times. That, <laughs> but somebody, somebody showed up with a gun. Let's yeah. talk about this story. I had never heard this before. Yeah. Well, in, in nightlife, your, your life is threatened many different times. And, you know, I remember even when I started working the door at 19 or 20, you don't let someone in. And they're like, oh, I'm driving back tonight. And I'm going to gun you down. And they say that to you. They say it. And they look at you. Yeah, they, they, they lock eyes until you <laughs> look away. And that never happened, at least to me. And, um, you know, we did – it was very rare to, to have shooting. Did it freak you out or clubs. did you just know that it yeah, was Yeah, it rare. freaks you out for okay. a while. And then the more empty threats, right, the, yeah. it becomes almost a pattern of empty threats. Um, you're a little careful. You're looking over your shoulder on your way home. But this this thing that I write about in the book, uh, we shouldn't give too much away. But um, there was there was a moment that felt a little different, and you know it gave me a great excuse to um, to get out of town for uh, for a couple of weeks, which eventually led to really the I got out of town for good. I never yeah. went back. It was this this forced separation that then led to a permanent separation, and uh, was really this gift that I was given. Um, because at that point, you know, I had I had come, uh, I'd kind of reached. Oh, there's there's so many different ways to say this. I mean, uh, the the latest analogy that that I've kind of been using is I had this moment ten years in where I felt like uh, that game of musical chairs and the music stopped, and I just looked around and I didn't have a place to sit. Mm. You know, I felt um, unsettled, and and this happened for me really on a vacation where I should have been. I should have had every chair to sit in, you know? I should have had my choice of all the chairs. It was, we'd, we'd gone to Punta del Este in South America. Uh, we'd rented a compound with horses and with servants. There were magnificent Dom Perignon. Uh, I remember going into the fireworks store and spending $1,000 on fireworks. I, I thought I had the most beautiful girlfriend on the compound. She was on the cover of uh, Elle magazine, I think it was at the time. And I just, all the things that I'd kind of been trying to collect over the 10 years all culminated in this trip. And there was a party that went on too long. And it was, it was a New Year's Eve party that started, let's say, at 10 o'clock and 4 or 5 p.m. the next day. Everybody was still on our compound, cracked out, dancing to music. And I wanted the music to stop. I wanted everybody to go home. It felt so unhealthy. And this really led me to a return to spirituality, a return to morality, kind of... Uh, you know, it was my moment, I guess, with in the prodigal son parable, right? The he, he's he's with the pigs, and you know he doesn't even have pig food to eat. <laughs> so this was really my moment where I realized, you know, I was rotting inside. I'd become the worst person I knew. I was creating a meaningless legacy, uh, and and something really needed to change. And I missed home. Mm. I really missed my parents. Yeah. I missed the safety of the. Uh, the virtues of faith and of morality. 
And I, I guess I saw it all playing out, like almost in, uh, in uh, you know, when you used to fast forward the VHS. You, know, you kind of go like... <laughs> um, as I looked around, I saw people who were richer. And I saw people who had planes. And I remember uh, a guy who we were with was, was playing $10,000 hands of Baccarat. And he just looked like he didn't care whether he won or he lost. There was just an absolute indifference Right, ten thousand dollars a hand—that's a lot of money, right? You know, he's he's doing Maseratis and Lamborghinis yeah. in four and eight minute stints, <laughs> but yet he just didn't care. So, you know, I came back to New York City and I really floundered a bit because my my life as a nightclub promoter was now in complete juxtaposition with my attempt at uh, a lost morality and the reclaim of faith and morality. And then this incident gave me, in the summer, really gave me an opportunity to. Uh, to make the next move. Wow. Yeah. And so you were able to get out of town uh, fleeing, but then ultimately just staying gone. Did you ever see that guy again? No. Nope. Have you ever seen him in your life? No. Nope. Wow. You ever think about that? Um, I, I did when I first came back. Yeah. Um, it'd be fun if you read the book. You know, he was kind of a, <laughs> he was kind of a savior. Yeah. <laughs> when that, that would be pretty remarkable. And, and you know, I, I, it's, it's even hard to know whether any of it was real. Yeah, you know, totally. I, mean, I I took that specifically as a less empty threat, but all the other threats had been empty. Yeah, and I hadn't acted on any of them. Hmm. I hadn't quit the last twenty times that somebody had threatened to, you know, <laughs> to kill me with a gun. Yeah, man. Okay, so you leave town. Uh, you decide, hey, I'm not going back to New York. You move out. Um, what's your game plan for what's next? Did you have a series of ideas on what what would come next? I really had one idea, <laughs> which was to make my life look exactly the opposite, um, to find the 180-degree path and explore that for one year. And there was something very interesting to me about tithing, the idea of, of one of the 10. So I'd wasted 10 years selfishly and hedonistically living. So what would it look like to take one year and serve others? And I applied to humanitarian volunteer opportunities, as one might, to the organizations that I'd heard of. And I had an NYU degree in communications that I'd, I'd never used. And I was a terrible student, you know, maybe C minus, maybe uh, the bare minimum to graduate. Uh, but I kind of dust off this degree and said, hey, maybe I can be useful in a humanitarian mission. Did you know enough to, to not share everything about your last 10 years when you were applying? I think I was too honest because now, now this is this newfound morality. So I think I was answering questions honestly. Do you Got smoke? It. I was like, yeah, I smoke. <laughs> like two packs of reds a day. <laughs> uh, what happens next is over the next month or so, I'm just, I'm denied. So the applications are rejected. People, you know, we don't have an opening. There's just, there's nowhere to go. And I remember being really discouraged. Uh, I, I went to Europe. I'm like, well, maybe I'll just start a new life in Europe. You know, maybe I'll be a waiter in, in a Spanish coastal town for a while. And maybe I'll be an artist. Or I, I, I didn't, you know, it's frustrating. I mean, you want to yeah. help and then you can't help. And at that time, you know, right before it was too late, uh, I was very fortunate. A group called Mercy Ships sends me an email and says, we've reviewed your application. As it later turns out, Brandon, they had actually seen my application and rejected it. But then they were about to start their mission, 
with the position really? still unfilled. They had to go back through the rejection. That's hilarious. So they reach You're out. You're the best reject. I was the best reject. And imagine maybe the only. I mean, I don't I mean, know. <laughs> but imagine what the other stories of people were. They got rejected right? twice. Right. <laughs> so they reach out and they say, you know, uh, our ship. It's a big humanitarian hospital ship, and we're going to be sailing to Benin and then Liberia. And if you, you know, you have to pay five hundred dollars a month to be. A, a Fantastic. crew volunteer here. So this is, I mean, everything looked like opposite. Yeah. And then I learned we were going to Liberia. Now, I had never heard of Liberia at the time, but I learned it was actually the poorest country in the world. It was, it had fallen off the UN development charts because there was no data as Charles Taylor led a 14-year civil war of child soldiers. And so imagine this picture, right? You have to pay to serve in the poorest country of the world. I'm like, this is my opposite. <laughs> Sign me up. Man. And... During this time, were you letting your parents know what was going on? Were they proud of you? They were, uh, and they were liquidating my life. So money was actually an, an issue at this point because, um, as one might imagine, the life of a club promoter is not a saving, uh, wise stewardship, right? It's not a Dave Ramsey life. How much? Right? <laughs> Whatever we made, you know, if it was a few hundred thousand dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, we spent a little more. Man, and and we lived like millionaires because we were always surrounded by richer people. So you would get to go on other people's planes, and someone else was always picking up the tab for dinner. You know, someone else was whisking you into the Grand Prix in Montreal and backstage at Cirque du Soleil. You know, it was never really our money for that stuff. But um, I wasn't saving, so when I go on the ship, I remember just selling everything I owned. I was selling, I sold two two thousand DVDs on eBay and a. Big, I have so many DVDs. Trunk. I wish I could still. Sell Back they're then, not they worth, were worth anything. Something. Now they're not <laughs> worth anything. Uh, so my parents were helping. I remember my mom was going to the post office, just wow. selling video cameras, selling DVDs for me, and then just putting the money in my account as I was in Africa. That's remarkable. Okay, so you've maintained a good relationship with them. Um, they're thrilled. I yeah. mean, come on. Right? Yeah, I yeah. This is what New they've York, been hoping for all these years. And I'm going on a humanitarian mission. That's great to serve the poor with Christian doctors. I yeah, mean, that's like the kind of thing they can like tell their friends about, and their friends can be like, "Oh, that's cool." I mean, it's as if an angel, you know, yeah. appeared. I mean, you you probably couldn't think of a better answer of ten years of prayers for them. And I mean that seriously. I mean they they were prayer warriors. They had Man. entire churches praying that their prodigal would come home. Wow. And then one day, you know, I call them and say, "Hey, I've left nightlife. I've given <laughs> up my New York City apartment, and I'm going to go serve the poor with a bunch of Christian doctors in Africa." I mean, yeah, you talk about an answer to prayer. Were there other people who you had kind of burned through the years who didn't accept what you were doing as open-armed as your parents had? I think this surprises people, but when I left nightlife, so I had an email list of 15,000 people, and back then, you know, email open rates were almost 100%. It was, <laughs> yeah, this is before spam, really. Yeah. And they would get invitations to the parties we were doing at, let's say, the Prada store or, you know, an MTV music party or... And they very quickly went from a little bit of a gap, I mean, only a few weeks, really, to then this email saying, I've left New York and I'm going to go serve on a humanitarian ship as a photojournalist in Africa. And people were, they were like, I want to do that. I mean, really? that was a big surprise. It wasn't, hey, how lame. It was, wow, that sounds so exciting. Um, please let me know how it goes. Can we help? You know, please wow. take us pictures. Show us what it's like. Tell stories. Where was that coming from in them? Was that just, this is novel? Or do you think they had that same burning of like, 
I maybe shouldn't be in this lifestyle? It's an awesome question. I think it was both. Okay. So I think it was the novelty of just it sounded bizarre yeah. and exciting. Um, you know, if I told you I was going to go, you know, live with falconers in Mongolia, you'd be <laughs> like, I haven't thought of Mongolia or, you know, people that, that hunt with falcons. So I think there was a novelty of warlord, Charles Taylor, post-war Liberia, um, photojournalist, hospital ship, all these things, yeah. uh, giant facial tumors, leprosy, you know, all these really crazy things that people would never think about. But Yes, as people began to respond to the emails and the stories and the photos I was sending out, there was this sense of um, almost like wistful, like nostalgia. Like I, um, I wish I could do that. You know, I'm sitting here at my desk at Chanel, and um, you know, I sell high-end makeup products. Like, and here you are helping people with the most basic needs. You know, you're with a group of doctors saving lives. I want that life. I want to be a piece of, uh, you know, I want a part of that. So I think I was surprised at how, yeah. you know, a lot of my friends I thought only cared about partying and drinking and drugging, but were much more supportive than I thought. That's really interesting. And um, then there were, of course, some unsubscribes. Yep. <laughs> like, uh, no, thank you. This isn't the channel that I, you know, change yeah. the channel. Yeah, this is not what you want to open, you know, when you're at the office or over lunch or whatever it is. Okay, so I know that when you got on the boat, uh, they basically told you that you're not necessarily the only person who's ever come across this boat running away from an old life, but that what you ultimately have to do is be able to be independent and uh, to do your work, to kind of to take care of your inner self. What did that look like for you? Were you going in prepared to do that inner work, or was it in to some degree fleeing this other life? I think the most important thing for me was walking away from the external vices first. Yeah. So well, and those I, were... Well, excessive drinking and smoking and, you know, I mean, drugs outside of the club. Yeah. It's not easy to get drugs, but, <laughs> uh, you know, porn and gambling. Yeah. Call it, call it those, those vices. Did you so, quit everything cold turkey or... I did. And then I picked up drinking a little bit, <laughs> much more moderate. <laughs> but I never... Well, I had this, I had this cold turkey moment. Um, and I, you know, so imagine this giant white 522-foot ocean liner. And there's this gangway that just points up from the shore and disappears in this little hole that then leads onto the ship. So there was something just so um, almost prophetic about the picture of uh, almost from um, like Pilgrim's Progress or, you know, like kind of dropping, leaving all the crap behind, you know, leaving this bundle of all my vices on the shore, walking up the gangway and like the gangway then lifts yeah. And I left all that crap behind, and I sail off to a new life. Hmm. So that the night before I joined the mission and, and officially embarked and handed in my passport and kind of became a volunteer crew member, um, I did smoke three packs of cigarettes, and I did you know get hammered and drink I don't know, eight or nine beers and just wake up with a hangover the next day. Yeah. But that was it. So I never smoked again. I never touched Coke again or ecstasy or any of that. Um, I never gambled again. Um, and it's interesting because I'm always speaking in Las Vegas and like walking through the the casinos. And in some ways, I miss it. I, I used yeah. to love to gamble. Um, and I've never looked at pornography. I've never, uh, again, I've never set foot in a strip club. I just walked away from all of this stuff. Um, and then you know, realized that I think giving away those external vices then allowed me to um, take on maybe uh, virtue. 
you yeah. know, and, and, and begin this new story for my life. So I spent a lot of time in the early days in the library. I remember reading Practicing the Presence of God um, 50 times. I remember reading Tozer. I remember reading, um, you know, I, I'd never really experienced the Message Bible before. So I went in, you know, reading some of these stories, George Mueller, uh, I, I just reading reading biographies of kind of the great Christian preachers and E.M. Um, e. Bounds, like books on prayer. So was there I was any really level of cynicism in, in <laughs> that? Because I feel like... I feel like to some degree today I feel a sense of, you know, when I'm looking at a big library full of Christian books, a small sense of cynicism about being like, okay, does this person really mean this? Or does is this person really walking the walk? Or is this even real? Yeah, there was none for me. This really? was like re- reclaiming yeah. a lost heritage and a faith. And it was, uh, it, it was, I was all in. Um, Did you ever have a sense of deconstruction that came later, like a sense of kind of asking these questions or was it just that you had gone from such a, you know, such a dichotomous lifestyle to the opposite that you didn't need to unpack anything anymore? It was more that Um, I, yeah, I I guess it was more of a full circle than something in the middle. However, um, there was a religiosity that I remembered not liking growing up. There was more of a hypocrisy. And the, the beauty was I'm, I'm on a ship with the opposite of hypocrites. I'm, yeah, I'm on a ship that makes with sense. people who are living out their faith through their, their hands, through their work. So it is James 120, you know, 127. Um, true religion is looking after widows and orphans and keeping yourself from polluted by the world. So I'm surrounded by people who are living the best version of faith possible, not the finger-wagging, judgmental. I mean, they are going out in the leprosy colonies. They are going <laughs> out um, like, you know, like Jesus did, pouring out their whole lives in service of the poor with no personal gain. I mean, yeah. we're all paying. I wasn't the only one paying. <laughs> you know, you think about it. This is not uh, this Yeah, is there's not like an big-name doctors on board who are spending their own money Absolutely. Using their vacation time. Absolutely. And I met, a, I, met, um, I met a mentor early on. So the, the kind of moral compass of the ship was led by a guy named Dr. Gary Parker. And he was a surgeon from California that had signed up for a three-month stint. And he stayed 25 years when I met him. <laughs> now he's been there 35 years. And he just never went back. Wow. He, just, his, he left his, his old life. boss is so pissed. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and he wound up getting married and raising kids on the ship. Oh, They're wow. now in college. So he just, he made this his life. Uh, and this guy was like, he was like the gospel perf- personified. I mean, he was humble. He was soft-spoken. He was a great listener. And he just, he just had such a heart for the... those who are suffering and ending suffering. Wow. That's amazing that you get to have that kind of mentor in that sort of context where I bet that, I mean, that's got to be such a new experience seeing such huge suffering. Suffering, you know, I saw you presenting in Atlanta and I got to see these photos of, uh, you know, these ridiculous tumors that people were living with and, you know, these heartbreaking ailments and, and burns and these things that people were experiencing that, you know, I, I've traveled the world and I've never even seen some of these things. You're experiencing the hardest of the hard and yet you're surrounded by people, it sounds like, who are allowing you to have a healthy perspective on all of this. Were, were you freaking out a little bit? Yes, because 
the stuff we were seeing was in extremis. We were with a group of maxillofacial surgeons. So the specialty was huge growths on face, mm. right, or neck. And, I mean, seeing uh, – it's almost impossible to describe some of these photos. Six-pound tumors. Imagine, you know, a basketball coming out of your nose and mouth um, or an eye being pushed up six and a half inches, you know, by a giant – tumor, you know, teeth up in your eye. I mean, we were seeing stuff that was unthinkable. I mean, I remember meeting a man, Alex, once who had flesh-eating disease and his whole face was gone. It was just raw. I mean, it was, it smelled like rot. I mean, we were, everybody in the room was getting sick. Uh, so we, it was, you know, I've got to photograph everybody as close as you and I are sitting yeah. right now. So I've got to put a camera in everybody's face and, and capture this moment, capture this despair. So it felt violating at some points. It, it felt like, you know, imagine if, um, you know, you're driving by a car crash and everybody's in the car bloody and broken arms and you're like, click, 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 <laughs> click, click. Now, we, we were helping all these people and these, these were really medical photos. So we were documenting their journey from before and after. Um, but it, it was tough. I mean, I just remember... I remember a lot of crying. I mean, I, I probably wasn't, uh, I didn't think I was that sentimental through the club days, but mm. there would just be days where you're just, you just can't stop, uh, you can't stop the weeping because of the suffering and the sadness. And we couldn't, there were people who were turning away. There's people we diagnosed, so little hard. kids who would come and we would find out that their tumor had metastasized and we, we, didn't, we weren't in the chemo business, we were surgeons. And we'd send them home. And just knew they were going to die in some forgotten village. Uh, I mean, it was horrible stuff. And you had to let them know. Yeah, and their parents know. What's one of the big stories that that kind of stuck with you? One of the people who, you know, who's played a big role in in the work you do today. Well, there's this guy Harris that I talk about in the book, and I love the story because. To me, it felt like a direct answer to prayer. So, you know, as I'm sure. Some people listening, um, maybe you have a prayer life. Maybe you, you are praying for different things. And, you know, maybe some things get answered and some don't. But I remember this was on my second tour in Liberia. So I did a year in Benin in Liberia. I went back for a second year. And on that second tour, I was heading deep into the bush. I was taking a patient home because I wanted to actually photograph and, and um, capture on film the moment when he was reunited with his family and without that, his tumor. Was that a part of your job or was that something that you came I up with on your I just came own? up. Yeah, I just that... I wanted <laughs> I wanted to see these stories through. My job was yeah. before and after in the ward. But I'm like, man, this tumor grew for like a, over a decade. Yeah. They've never known this dude to look no, I think it was man. 18 years actually. This That's tumor had grown wild. for 18 years. So we fixed him up. He looked golden. And I wanted to go see and you know, it was a, it was a homecoming. I mean, it was almost these scenes, these scenes when a patient would go home, oh, it's interesting, I've never thought of this before, but in some ways they were like when the prodigal son's father goes running after him and the party is thrown. And maybe I was really trying to capture my homecoming in a way. I, mm, I don't know. That, interesting. But I, I would do this time and time again. So I would offer to drive the patient home an hour, two hours, four hours, eight hours into the bush and I was always there with the camera as they got out of my Land Rover and people recognized them. 
and the community would start running to them and they would tackle them and they would touch their face and they would look at them with wide eyes like, you know, our, our child that has been lost is now saved. I mean, it's really, uh, it was really this profound, like, picture of heaven and, and uh, health and grace and redemption. So I was on one of these, and I always knew what they were going to look like. They were always the same. I was never really let down. Yeah. You know, I would never take anyone home. They're like, uh, oh, Joe's back. <laughs> you know, it's doesn't have a giant six-pound tumor in his face. <laughs> you know, it was never like that. Yeah. They, were, they were always these joyful That's celebrations. That's incredible. So I take, I'm, I'm trying to take Joseph, and Joseph Jones, his name was. We'd become good friends on the ship, and, uh, you know, I'd watch movies sometimes with the patients. I mean, we'd, we'd, we'd develop a relationship. And I'm taking him deep into the village, and I remember praying, God, we're, we're going way into the, the rural area. Um, wouldn't it be cool if I could find someone who hadn't heard of the ship? And maybe be able to even bring him back with me. Like it was that specific of a prayer. Mm. Now this prayer didn't. What's even cooler about this for me is the prayer didn't make any sense because we were full. The surgery schedule was filled in two days. There were no slots, so we'd already turned away people. Um, but I guess I just knew. You know, I had a relationship with Dr. Gary now, and this was a culture where they would always fit someone in. And you're a charmer. You've still got that part of you. You know, but th- this was <laughs> this was a culture where you'd work on a Saturday or you'd work yeah. on a Sunday. You know, the, these were the Samaritans that stopped and, you know, put the, the person on the horse and paid for the hotel, not the people that walked by. Yeah. So this is exactly what happened. So I'm halfway to the to Davitown, this remote village in the uh, Liberia headed towards Sierra Leone. And I stop in this store to buy rice, a big bag of rice as a gift for Joseph's village chief. And in this rice store, uh, I notice out of the corner of my eye a man gesturing uh, kind of frantically towards his neck region. And I go up to the guy, and, and in Liberia they speak English, so I say, uh, what are you doing? And he said, um, he recognized Joseph, I think, really? as, as having the tumor and not having it. And he said, there's a man living in this town called, uh, it was called Buchanan, with another big tumor. I'm like, oh my gosh, there we well, go. where is he? There we go. So we grab this kid in the store, uh, like a, a young boy who knows where he lives, and we jump in the car, and we go looking for him, and we go to Harris's house, and he's not there. Then we go to his father's house, and he's not there. And we're about to just leave and say, all right, well, we didn't find him. Let's go. We, we have a long drive still to get to Joseph's village before dark. And out of the corner of our eyes, we spot this guy walking from the beach, uh, which was we were on the coast, towards our Land Rover. And he has the biggest tumor I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. I mean, we're talking, uh, it's the size of his head. Wow. And he walks up to us and we say, um, I'm like, hi, my name is Scott. Uh, I come from a ship. In Monrovia, and it's full of doctors and surgeons who are here to treat facial tumors like yours. And I'm actually with a guy who we just did that for. And I run back into the Land Rover, and I have these before and after. Oh, that's amazing. Eight and a half by 11. That's good. I always send the patients home with pictures that I'd taken of them that's cool. before surgery, pre-op. So I show Harris. I'm like, this guy had a tumor not quite as big as yours, but big. Um, maybe you'll come back with me on the ship. And, you know, he's like, Okay, when are you ready? And I'm like, well, how about we pick you up tomorrow morning? And then I remember he says, don't come too early because I like to sleep in. And this <laughs> is what I ready, knew. But... <laughs> right? I had a character on my hand. So uh. I'm so happy. I go back. I take Joseph. Um, I remember that night. 
I didn't sleep at all because there were giant spiders in the hut that we were staying in. I mean, this is off the grid. And, like, oh, it was, it was I mean, hand-sized spiders. And... You know they would up, they would be up and then they'd fall underneath my bed Ugh. and oh I was I don't like spiders That's awful. I don't like spiders so I didn't sleep at all so we got up at like five in the morning and I'm like let's go get Harris so I say goodbye to Joseph <laughs> I had my roommate with me and we go we wake Harris up and we drive him the four hours back to Monrovia in the meantime I had called Dr Gary Parker I paged him over the ship's loudspeaker and said hey I think I found someone and this is after I'd made the promise so I could have gotten in real yeah. trouble for this. But I said, hey, Gary, I, I found someone. You know, he's got a giant tumor. I don't know if it's cancerous or not, but would you at least see him? So Gary's like, bring him. So we, we take Harris back to the ship, and Gary sees him and tests it. Um, his hemoglobin level was so low, uh, Dr. Parker said he probably only had a couple weeks to live, if that. Whoa. So we had, we had gotten him towards the end. It later turns out that Harris had heard about the ship, but he'd had so many false starts he'd seen doctors and every other doctor said we couldn't help him so he didn't bother going wow. why would these doctors be any different what well, turned out they're maxillofacial surgeons what was even crazier is that he had been praying that god bring a hospital to him huh, so his of prayers had been as specific yeah. as mine so i'm praying hey could i find somebody that hasn't heard of the ship well it turns out he had but um actually close didn't want to go <laughs> close enough and he'd been praying that doctors would come and find him Man. that could actually help. That's great. So, so it, was, it was a great story. And then he, uh, we were able to operate him on him. Um, he spent Christmas with us. This guy had a sense of humor. I remember he would pee off the bow of the ship. <laughs> he would smoke. So he was a smoker. And, you know, you look at this tumor. Like, I, you know, he would kind of jam the cigarette in between <laughs> his tumor and his mouth. And, um, and then when I took him home, there was this huge party. And I wound up uh, giving him a dinner, I think, for 50 people. And I gave him, I threw him a party. I gave the whole town open bar for a couple hours. They had like a local, um, some local uh, beer or something. And uh, it was just, it was a really amazing thing. I mean, I was in some ways throwing another party yeah. uh, with hundreds of people. How much this did cost, it cost? I think it cost me like 150 or 200 bucks. <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, that's so good. So that, this was what the, the experience was like for me. I mean, it yeah. had this sense of adventure um, you were inspired, and we were really focusing on the people that we could help, uh, even though it, it broke our hearts to turn away people. Man. And at what point do you realize, I mean, spoiler alert, eventually you start a water uh, charity. Uh, how do you decide that tumors aren't the thing that you're going to focus on anymore, but rather you're going to focus on water? I was lucky. Uh, this, this huge hospital ship operation uh, allocated a little bit of money to a small team to go out and help people in the rural communities. And the best way they could help them was by giving them clean water. So they would dig a few wells every outreach. And because my job as you know photojournalist was to capture everything the ship was doing, that also meant going out into the villages with this guy Leif, who was their volunteer, who was teaching the locals how to dig wells and protect them. And, and these are like hand-dug they wells. They were hand-dug wells. So they were these giant holes that would take a few months to dig. Oh wow! And you're going down maybe forty feet, four oh, stories. So yeah. these aren't these aren't like the drilled wells that are hundreds of feet. I deep. mean, that's still that's a big. Oh hole. yeah, and and every you know there's just there's a tripod, and a rope and a bucket. So you're digging. You put it in the bucket. Somebody pulls up the bucket, <laughs> tosses the dirt. 
bucket down. I mean, this takes a long time. Yeah. And then you find water, and then you've got to actually pump the water out. So you dewater the well as you can go deeper and deeper and deeper so that you actually get you know, enough water. So oh, it's, think about it, it's sense. not just soup at your feet. You've got to actually fill that well with water yeah. once you hit it in the ground. So I learned about this process, and I think there's just something strikes me. The visual picture of a community drinking from a green swamp, okay? Watching children put water to their lips that you and I wouldn't let our animals drink. We wouldn't let cows drink this water, let alone dogs. You know, we wouldn't let goats drink this water. And seeing men, women, children drink uh, from contaminated sources and then a 100 feet away from the swamp, you have a team that finds clean drinking water that you and I can drink. And I don't know if it was irony or, you know, there's almost a sense of outrage. Like, yeah. oh, my gosh, people are living on top of the thing that could save their lives. But they don't have the knowledge and the resources to tap into that thing. And Mercy Ships did that on just such a tiny scale, um, just a few water projects. But I really caught the vision. And then I began um, – the, the great thing about my job is I was constantly in the operating theater documenting the operation. So I'm wearing hospital scrubs, and you have a lot of time to talk to the surgeons. And in some ways, you know, a lot of these common surgeries, cleft lips, cleft palate, they were just second nature. Yeah. So I've got, I've got you know, 100 hours with Dr. Gary Parker in the operating theater, and I'm telling him the water that I'm seeing out there. And he's telling me the diseases associated with bad water. And in short, the, the doctors and the surgeons encourage me to go work on that issue. You know, mm, something to the effect cool. of, you really want to make an impact on health. Why don't you go give the billion people on the planet clean water instead of funding the next hospital ship or, you know, or the next group of doctors and surgeons? So to me, I really discovered water through health, through the lens of health, and you know, realize maybe this is kind of the question behind the question. This is the underlying root cause of so much of the sickness and disease. Man, did you have a game plan in mind at that point? Did you know what you wanted to do? At that point, I came back to New York. So now I was officially done. I'm 30. Uh, I come back broke because <laughs> I'd really been broke the whole time. And my, my old club business partner takes me into his apartment in Soho, and he lets me sleep on a walk-in closet floor. Which is he trying nice. to get you back into your old life at all? Is, is there any pressure going on? No. That's cool. No. No. And, and I'd written so many words and so many yeah, things. That, I mean, I was, I was all in. Uh, I was blogging. I was, you know, he would have gotten, oh, 50 emails from me <laughs> of stories. So I was all in. No, I'm, I'm telling him I'm going to solve the water crisis before I die. I mean— I, I am going to do everything in my power to get a billion people on the planet clean water. Was so he, him supporting you kind of his way of being a part of that? I think so. I think so. He was doing a lot of drugs at the time. <laughs> He'd moved on to heroin, uh, and and but but was supportive. So he was yeah. he was kind of living his lifestyle, uh, and and was was not discouraging me. Was was kind of indifferent yeah. in a way. Kind of, well, you want to do that? Go for it. Uh, you can use my couch and, you know, you can build an office here. So if you'd asked me then what I thought I was going to do, I actually wanted to make Mercy Ships famous first. So I wanted to do, I had done an exhibition of my photos, of 108 of my photos in a gallery in New York City. And I'd invited all my friends from Nightlife to that exhibition. And I'd asked them 
to look at the photos, learn about the stories and the surgeries, and then to give at the end. And that was a really, it was successful. So I wanted to do these all over the world. I'd flown to Zurich on my own dime. I'd flown to Prague. I'd flown to Berlin. I'd found these huge exhibition stations. I mean, I was I had grandiose visions. Really? Train stations. I was going to take over huge train stations. Or Mercy Ships. Yeah. And then Mercy Ships said, no, thanks. <laughs> cool idea, but, you know, we're not, I think, in some ways, I always terrified them. I mean, I was this yeah. loose cannon. Yep. Um, I think some people are born to work in organizations, and some people are born to be entrepreneurs. Uh, and I think th- they just said, that there's no way we can, th- this guy's just going to drive us crazy. I mean, I would write 14 emails in the space of an hour, you know, with demands <laughs> of, here's what we need to do. I need your mailing list. I need credit card machines. I need this. And they're like, whoa, there's a process. There's a, you know, we have systems and there's a chain of command. So I just didn't get any of that. So that door shut very quickly. And I said, well, okay, they don't want my help anymore. Um, of all the things that I saw, I just kept coming back to water. And I said, all right, I'm going to go for, I'm going to go for it. So I thought that helping Mercy Ships would eventually lead me to that. But that was kind of going to be the bridge. So that door, I mean, Mercy Ships just ended. Yeah. I mean, it ended in, in a very final way. And I was kind of looking around saying, all right, what's next? There's, yeah. no, there's no soft landing. But you had the energy and the momentum to keep on going. And I had the photos. And the, I had the credibility. And the, there was something so powerful about being an eyewitness to it all. It's one thing telling somebody else's story, and it's another telling your own story when you've lived it. Yeah. So I came back with 50,000 photos that I had taken. I knew the names of all these patients. I knew the name of the girl, Hawa, living in that village where I'd seen her drinking from the swamp. So I, I had this credibility because I had, I'd been there almost two years. You know, this wasn't like a drive-by the poor, you know, let me go pet the poor for a week in Africa on a missions trip um, or you know, and then come straight back with my selfies with, you know, a bunch of, uh, sorry, that sounds way more cynical than it should. I mean, but, uh, <laughs> I'm with you, you. you know, it was, it was like, I really lived this. Yeah. So I think that that came across to people. So that's good to start. I was running around with my laptop with my photos and I was, I'd make 10, 15 presentations a day hmm. to anybody that would give me 30 minutes. And old look club at friends. Pictures. Old club friends, old DJs, <laughs> club owners, people that own restaurants. And you're trying to get them to give you money or resources? All of it. All of Donate it. a gallery so I can um, host an event. Donate a club so I can host a fundraiser. Uh, donate a set because I have this idea to build these giant outdoor exhibitions. I went to MTV Set Builders and said, hey, will you help me create photo exhibitions that we can put on trucks and move from park to park? Um, we, we initially sold a $20 bottle of water. I thought that'd be cheeky. You know, we don't really need to buy a water, bottle yeah. of water. A billion people didn't have clean water. Let's sell it for 20 bucks and use all the money, all $20, to help people get clean water. And so people are saying yes to these things. And a lot are saying no. Okay, and a lot are saying no. Because I was – it's interesting because I think about my email inbox, and it's filled with people asking me for mm-hmm. things. I mean, not all the time, but there's a lot of stuff in there. And – I just because of my capacity and availability, I have to say no to most of those things. Yeah, you're a bad person. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> but I, <laughs> no. I do cringe thinking, what if what if Scott Harrison no, is, I, is in this? You I'm know? in the same, believe me, I'm in the same boat now. Um, and, you know, I heard, uh, I, I was at uh, a conference once, I heard Andy Stanley say, do for one what you wish you, sh- you could do for many. 
There we go. Which I really like. And, that and feels you good. Can, it, it can be more than one, but I think I heard so many no's. So I got I got lost in so many people's inboxes. Yeah. But just a sheer volume. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if I was batting 5%, one out of every 20 people said yes. And you might I be had their my only next yes. Thing. I, but I had my next connection to go That's get cool. the next yes. That's you know, good. I had that link or that bridge. Yeah, believe me, it was really, it was discouraging at times um, because, and also you have no proof of concept. Yeah. So why would anyone give you money? We didn't have a 501c3. We weren't tax deductible. This is just an idea from a former nightclub promoter who went to Africa and took a bunch of pictures. (laughs) What the heck do I know about starting a charity? What the heck do I know about water? You know, I'm not an expert in any of these things. If we fast forward a little bit, you create an organization called Charity Colon Water because the focus is water. Uh, and you've got these ideas that you ultimately want this to be super accountable and trustworthy. Therefore, there's proof in every single well that you build or every single water project you create so people can track it, can look at the GPS, et cetera. You wanted to set it up so that 100% of all donations went directly to the cause, and you wanted to have branding that was beautiful enough that people would trust it, that it would feel like an Apple or a Nike, and you were doing all these things that were changing the way people were thinking about nonprofits or, or, or rather you were doing something that nobody had ever done in the nonprofit space, therefore reaching people who had never connected with nonprofits. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds I, better than I would have said at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just so deeply inspired by this and I feel like that's maybe what first drew me to what you were doing early on in the charity water days. But I guess my question for you is, how clear was all of this as it was happening? Because I know in hindsight, yeah. you can have so much ability to say, this is how it should be. And 100%, it is how it should be. But at the time, you know, you're in the midst of this. You're, you're processing all of this. And you're not just thinking about your brand. You're also thinking about, okay, how do I get the resources for a plane ticket? How do I contact somebody in Africa to, to dig this? You know, you're thinking about all these other things. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that, that process. I would say we stumbled into almost okay. all of the core foundational blocks <laughs> today that you, I mean, you articulated it so clearly. Uh, at, the, at the time, I think this happens for a lot of int- entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs. You're just trying to solve a problem and you're getting information about how to solve a problem. And, and the problem I was trying to solve was bring clean drinking water to everybody on the earth. So that was the mission. And that would require a huge groundswell of awareness and care to solve the problem. Yep. And then it would require huge amount, billions of dollars of resources, money. So as I talked to people, I realized that there was just this, you know, again, I had the advantage of being 30 and talking to just everyday people, or New Yorkers and people who went out to clubs. I realized that there was a serious cynicism and skepticism around charitable giving, around charities, thinking they were bureaucratic, thinking they were badly run, thinking that they didn't uh, do the right thing with money, thinking that very little of the donations actually made it to whatever the cause was. And I came across a billionaire hedge fund manager who had started his own charity with the 100% model. And he was rich enough to pay for the overhead and make this – he also sensed there was a distrust and said, you know what, my charitable contribution out of my billions – will be paying for the overhead and the staff. That's awesome. So I wrote him a letter, and he didn't write me back. <laughs> but I just borrowed the model yeah. and said, I wonder if, if a non-billionaire, if a kid living on a closet floor in Soho can bootstrap 
this idea because it's a powerful idea. He separated yeah. two bank accounts. There's the bank account where all your public donations go and you never touch them and 100% of them go directly to your work. And then the other bank account where for us somehow we would try and find visionary investors yeah. and donors who would get excited about paying for the overhead. Yep. You know, we'd make overhead cool and sexy somehow. Yeah, the accounting and the the printers and <laughs> So that that's that's how it happened. Okay, now all of a sudden you have two bank accounts with a couple hundred dollars each and you have your 100% promise. So then we launched with the birthday. 700 people came. We raised $15,000 that night. And then you put $15,000 into the water bank account. <laughs> and then, as you said, you have to go figure out how to spend it. And I actually – Bob Goff was actually involved in our first six water projects. Really? He helped me find Joy Drilling, which was the how actual did, well driller. How I did, had met him somehow through Invisible Children so Guys. Or, uh, and, and I'm like, I got $15,000. Can I drill some wells in Uganda where I had just been and seen the water <laughs> crisis? So he connects me with a drilling company. And um, now we have our first six projects. And then I randomly met the founder of Google Earth. And, you know, we were started at the same time. So I realized, like, Google Earth and Google Maps are building this free place where we can geolocate all of our wells and whatever water projects we do in the, in the future. So that was right time and right idea. And, oh, it was so clunky in the beginning. I mean, the way we would even do that. And Man. we were breaking, you know, oh, I, spreadsheets and <laughs> forms and it didn't work half the time. And then I said, okay, well, then how do we collect GPS coordinates? Well, I went into a Best Buy and Garmin made a $100 GPS device. So I said, all right, well, let's send people to Uganda, take pictures of our wells, turn on the GPS next to all six wells, and then let's upload this to Google Maps. And now you have proof, like the second pillar. And then, and actually before that, once we then sent those pictures and GPS coordinates and the video back to the 700 people that attended the party, they were all so blown away that the charity bothered to tell them where $20 went and closed the feedback loop that we said, this is actually rare. Yeah. So now we have pillar number two, proof. Okay, let's let's just keep doing this. Let's take 100% of the public's money. Let's show them where it goes and believe that if in the showing, in the seeing of it, they will have their faith restored in giving, will create a virtuous cycle of generosity. They'll give more not only to us but to others. So that was two. And then the branding thing was just charities looked bad. Their website sucked. Their marketing materials, they weren't. Beautiful. They weren't elegant. They weren't mm. inspirational. They weren't. They didn't look like Tesla, or Virgin, or um, Apple or Nike. You know, they often used shame and guilt. It was the feeling of poverty porn and kids with sad eyes and flies. And so we just said, well, that doesn't make me want to. That doesn't make me feel good about joining a charity or joining a movement. I don't want to wear the T-shirt of the the shame and guilt charity. So can we just make this really cool and yeah, fun? And exactly. We have pictures of clean water and water shooting out of the ground and people laughing and dancing. And can we turn the charity into more of a celebration of good of, so then yeah. we kind of had our brand value. Totally. And as a, as a budding photographer, when I first connected with charity water, that changed the way that I saw my ability to photograph things, because that's right around the time when I started working with, nonprofits and socially conscious brands traveling around the world. And I remember getting asked by nonprofits, okay, hey, photograph the kid, you know, with the with the puffed out belly and the, you know, the mucus running down his face from, you know, malnutrition, dehydration, etc. And I would just say no. I learned really early on from you guys that it's so important to 
to, to treat people with dignity in those photos and in your marketing and communications and to ultimately lead from a place of hope because not only is it the right thing to do, but it's also more effective. Yeah. So we just, we really stumbled into that. Those, those are still the three things that I would talk about, you know, yeah. 12 years later. Yeah. And then I, I guess, you know, the local partners is really important. We, we just realized that, um, for the work to be sustainable, the actual work, whether it was building a well or a gravity fed system or a rainwater harvesting system or filtration systems, for any of this work to be sustainable, it had to be led by the locals. So our job would be finding the local well drillers and hydrologists and helping uh, raise the capacity of their organization. So that's looked like us now buying, we bought 45 trucks for a partner. We've bought Man. millions of dollars of drilling rigs. Um, we've really helped them scale up. But the the goal is that that they get all the credit, that the, the Rwandans in Rwanda, the Ethiopian partners in Ethiopia, they are the ones that are planting the flag, yeah, helping their communities and really their good. countries move forward, not some foreigners, not the Westerners. So we've done now, gosh, I think we've done $70 million of water projects in Ethiopia, and I've been 30 times. I go into places they have no idea who Charity Water is, <laughs> and that's the win. They know our local partner, the Relief Society of Tigray. Yeah. They know their work over 35 years. Um, there, I think there are 300 people working on the projects there. There's not a single Westerner. There's not anyone with That's my skin huge. color. That's really So I believe cool. our role can be to raise money and awareness, but um, the work has to be to my look. So we put all that together, and then you had Charity Water. Man, in those early days, that's when you met uh, your wife, right? Mm-hmm. I loved how much of the book focused on Vic. I've only met her once, but she was delightful, so kind, and so talented. How did you guys initially meet? Day one was the party in the nightclub. A month later, uh, I, I hinted at this, but we put this outdoor exhibition together. And it was a simple idea. Create giant plexi tanks, take dirty water from the East River in New York, the Hudson River, <laughs> and ponds in New Jersey and Long Island, cool. put it in these big tanks, build these tanks into giant gallery walls that were on wheels and could fit up in a, in a truck overnight, and then show New Yorkers... Their dirty water juxtaposed by people drinking dirty water around the world. Mm. Um, and we just had, I remember this big Baskerville, uh, you know, these quotes said, would you drink this? Was the question. <laughs> and it was a little edgy. It was a little irreverent. Um, and I needed about 100 volunteers to help man the galleries as they moved around to these different stations. So Vic had been working at an agency, she'd been working. She she was a designer and animator. She'd been working on Clinique and Toyota and uh, I don't know one of the the Coke or Pepsi brands, and just was really dissatisfied with her work. Um, her agency's slogan was "Create Desire," hmm. and you know she's like, "Yeah, but create desire for what? For you yeah. know, for makeup or beauty totally. products?" And so she was feeling discontented. Um, her roommate knew me from the clubs and one day in the lobby of her walk-up says, hey, my friend got back from Africa. He's doing this crazy thing. Her roommate actually helped me build the sets. And uh, I said, why don't you come and volunteer? So she volunteers at Union Square in New York. At the end of the day, I start talking to her because she was there at the very end. And I say, what do you do? She says, I'm a designer. I'm like, we need a designer. Can you work for free? And you know, she comes, uh, she said, yes, I'll, I'll start moonlighting. So a couple of days later, she turns up at what she thinks is an office, and it's my business partner's crack <laughs> pad, right? So, you know, me, imagine, like, this professional girl walking in with her portfolio and her briefcase oh my into a place where I'm living on a closet floor. You know, my uh, club partner is just 
partying, so there's probably beer bottles everywhere. And we have like a very serious meeting. So <laughs> she doesn't walk out, and I'm completely That's serious. That's so I open up sign. my I open up my laptop and I just start hammering through the hundred photos and telling her my whole experience. And here's Dr. Gary Parker, and here's the And did you give her your full like uh club world experience? Yeah, too? all of it. You all spilled it. it all. Okay. Yeah, but I mean maybe even beginning, like maybe just beginning to end. I wow. think I've just been doing that for a while. Here's who I am, here's how my life changed, here's how I found water, and here's what I hope to do. As a side note, when you were speaking at Atlanta, I was uh, standing backstage, and as you walked up stage, one of the stage people looked at me and was like, he has 198 slides, or whatever the number was. She's like, it's a lot of slides. Um, and I like to imagine that you were doing that exact same thing to yes. Vic and everybody else back in the day. Yep. I think I did it in 54 minutes. I was, I was four minutes over. I apologize to Jeff. I was like, I'm so sorry, bro. Uh, I, was, I was exactly doing that. And, and yeah, in, in some ways, things really haven't changed that many years. Anyway, so she, um, she works with us for a little while. She's talented. She, starts, she teaches herself how to edit video, to shoot video. Um, she was an animator. She teaches herself uh, JavaScript and HTML. And then I convince her to take a pay cut, give up all of her health care benefits <laughs> and her 401k and become employee number two at the Man. organization. And she does. And there's some crazy stories in the book about what happens next. And yep. um, she so goes good. to Liberia to try and follow in my step footsteps. But yeah, that that really was that was how she came in. And then uh, we worked together for a while. And, and again, in the book, we talk about how we actually got together. And, 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 and it, so it's not good. creepy. Uh, no. Or at least it's not presented creepy. <laughs> oh man, it's it's really really sweet, and I love that. I love that she found you in this time of your life where you were transitioning, doing this new thing, and and you guys got to do this whole journey together. We did, and what's really fun is that we were. She came to my parties many times. Really, so she would have been a part of my old life. Oh my god, the, the gosh. second half of that decade. So the nights, because we'd say, hey, well, I used to do Thursday nights at Lotus. And she's like, I used to go to Thursday nights at Lotus no. all the time. So she'd be in that club of 500 or 1,000 people. Um, so there were That's probably incredible. 20 times where we were in the same club at the same time in a former life. Um, Man. And, and then met in a completely different context years later. That's incredible. I, I love that. And I love how involved she was from the beginning of Charity Water and, and certainly – it would not be what it is without her Absolutely skills not. that she brought to the table. Um, and she's getting ready for her second act. So she's, uh, she's oh, working really? on a little startup now Good. Um, where she's going to teach branding and design and, and storytelling to, to people in this early stage and Man. try and take everything she's learned. She, she worked for nine years. We started having kids. Um, and then she, she basically retired from Charity Water and said, I'm going to try and teach some of the things that I've learned and, and help others. That's great. Man, that's exciting. That's really cool. I feel like there's so much stuff that is in your book that we are not going to be able to get to, and I just want to name drop them so that people feel pumped to read it. <laughs> there's the really cool story about Central African Republic and you guys working so hard to drill a well there. And actually, here's the thing. I'm basically, there's a lot of failure stories in here that yeah. are so good. So like you're trying to build a well, it doesn't happen. You have to deal with the ramifications of that. You guys get sued for yep. something else at some point. Yep. Uh, I had no idea about that because that's that's more recent. That happened yeah. like five years ago, since six years ago. Like Cubby started working with you guys, right? Man, like things like that are wild. Yeah, the suing thing actually blew my mind, and it's really interesting how you handled that. But I want to fast forward to kind of today in the state of clean water. 
what are the statistics on where clean water was when you started yeah. and where they are today? So it's good news. <laughs> this is what I wanted to come should, back to. We should, uh, we should do a full page. Uh, Honestly. Uh, when, when we started, it was 1.1 billion people. Mm. And all of my early art would have six glasses of water and one dirty. So it would be one in six people. Now it's 660 million out of a larger global population. It's about one in every 10 or one in every 11 alive today. Wow. So you could still say, oh my gosh, one out of every 10 people today don't have clean water. There are people with internet and not clean water. You know, we're flying internet balloons over the world. And so it's, it's, it's still, you know, uh, a huge problem, but it, it's gone in the right direction. Now, to break that down a little more, uh, of the 663 million people, most of the people uh, now live in the rural areas. So Got 80% it. of those people, think of them living in the, uh, the smaller subsistence farming remote communities, right? Communities where you would have to drive long distances or walk, not in the cities and the towns, not in the yeah. urban or peri-urban and, areas. And there's less people per you know, square mile or whatever. Exactly. So it's harder to reach a greater number of people. Less density. And most of the people that have gotten clean water over the last decade, so most of that progress was the exact opposite. It was in the cities and the towns and the highly populated areas. And that's where most of the government money goes first. So the work gets a little harder now, and the problem is a little more severe. So of the 663, now you're talking about women who are walking, you know, often five hours a day or seven hours a day. Uh, So it's... We're going in the right direction, which is really good news, and the work is getting harder. This is like where I start getting energized, though, because it's a solvable problem. You just have to get more creative about it. So what are the creative ways that you guys are are stepping in to meet these unique needs? Well, we've taken a solution agnostic approach when it comes to what we would actually do or fund in the field. So now we've funded 13 different technologies. So a lot of people think Charity Water drills wells. We do drill some wells. Um, but we do so many other things now. And we, you know, we've really kept things simple. Uh, but you know, I, I'm now starting to talk about some of the rainwater harvesting systems we've done in the Thar Desert, where we'll build these giant trenches and we'll, uh, we'll create sand filters and we'll create cement around them. And when it rains really hard during that month or that two months, we catch all the rain and it's enough for the family to use. Um, we've done some really cool pond sand filters and bio sand filters in Cambodia. Um, we've done work in Rwanda, which I'm so proud of. We took one district, the Rolindo district of Rwanda, where um, just shy of 300,000 people live. And we've worked, I think it's nine years in a row now. We've done about $12 million in that district. And we went from, let's call it 20% water coverage, and we're at 99%. Whoa. So we are, I think, six villages away from everyone, from 100% coverage in that district. And we're hoping that could be a model. And then we've already moved on to the next district, That's which great. even has more people. And now we're starting that journey. And I love that because you're empowering an entire community. And so they can start just growing and thriving. And who knows, maybe, maybe you know, 10 years down the road, they're building, you know, the next system for the next community over there. Yeah, and we want to show that it could be done. So imagine if, you know, Tennessee and Georgia had 
10% water coverage and you started just working in Tennessee and you worked over a decade and you got Tennessee to 100%, you would show that it's possible for mm. all the states, all the other 50 states, uh, and, and then you'd move on to the next. So we've, we've got some approaches now which are going really deep and focused and taking a decade-long view um, where we know what 100% coverage looks like. I mean, some of the numbers are astonishing. We're working in a place in... Um, in Ethiopia, we've done about 70 million. It's another 250 or 300 million Man. to get to 100% in that region. Millions and millions of people living there. Um, but now, you can, when you're around for 12 years, you can really take a longer view of this stuff. I'm really excited about the sensor work. So we, uh, we won a $5 million grant from Google a bunch of years ago to create a remote sensor. So now we're bringing our wells online. Um, we're even talking about the blockchain now. That's incredible. Um, where you, we can know how much, what, not only are our wells working for the years to come, but exactly how much daily gallons or liters are flowing. That's really cool. And the timings. So yeah, so I you can, can tell see. you, yeah, I can tell you, you know, oh, wow, this well started pumping at 4.02 a.m. yesterday, Ethiopia time, and, <laughs> and pumped out 1,765 liters. And then the last pump was at 7.18 p.m. Man. That's so cool. And the first well that you ever dug with charity water is still pumping. I, I got saw to that go see day. it. I got to go see it. Yeah, oh, 11 man. years later, and it was all banged up. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, these things will need to be repaired, just like cars. Yep. So you've got to take care of them. And that's why we're, we're investing millions now in sustainability, um, something we call pipeline at the organization. Um, so we've got roving teams now in different countries, almost like the Geek Squad or Apple Care <laughs> on motorbikes who will go out and make these repairs and then the community's paying for the repairs. But it was, it was really cool just to see something from, you know, a birthday at a nightclub, uh, still, still providing clean water over a decade later. Wow, man. What are the things that make you feel hopeful on kind of the USA side of things? So how have people's perspectives been changing with, you know, the global water crisis and how have you seen people, step up to the challenge to uh, to give everybody on Earth clean water? I think some of the issues here in the States have helped us. Um, you know, if you'd, if you'd met me 10 years ago and I was talking about water and you were a normal person, you'd be like, what are you talking about, dude? <laughs> um, now that's not the same, right? We've got Flint, Michigan that's, that's um, hit the consciousness. We've got yeah. Cape Town. We've got some droughts in California. So water is just this thing that people are a little more aware of. Oh, maybe it doesn't just flow freely forever, you know, and, and maybe not all water is clean. And, you know, the reality is we've really focused on rural water supply um, in lower income countries. So we, we looked at Flint. We just we bring no expertise to Flint. It's billions of dollars of infrastructure that's needed. It's, it's um, policy and a lot of politics. Like we, we actually add no value. We send our supporters to a bunch of local charities there. But I think all of that has actually helped just raise the consciousness that, wow, this isn't something we should take for granted. Yeah. And oh, by the way, um, you know, you, you look at Flint and then you look at a village in Malawi where, you know, a woman is drinking water with cow feces in it. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, I've said sometimes some of the, pl the places where we, where we work, I mean, they'd, they'd walk a month to drink from the toilets of mm. some of these places. Um, the water on a contamination basis would be 100x. So I think this is all just helping us think about water, um, thinking about providing it for not only the people of Flint, Michigan, but also uh, people around the world, the, the poor 
all around the world. Um, and I think it's been great. I mean, you, you and I have talked about this. I mean, seeing the creativity of our fundraisers. It's incredible. You know, people donating their birthday, people doing lemonade stands. Well, let's I talk just, about Jesse Carey for a second. Jesse Carey. Come on. I mean, this guy, uh, he's a podcaster for, for Relevant in, uh, in Atlanta, and he listened to Nickelback for seven consecutive days, 24-7. And he's married. You know, like his wife had to put up with that, yeah. too. I, I don't want to sell him short. I think he raised forty grand or sixty grand or something extraordinary. It's remarkable. Then the next year, he watched Nick Cage movies. Every <laughs> Nick Cage movie, he called it "Trapped in a Cage." How long did he do that one for? Uh, I think until every Nick Cage movie was over. No, so I think I think he went through the entire catalog. Oh no, this is good. These so, are really good ways of fundraising. You know, there's a there's a little girl in Vancouver that I that I love to talk about named Maddie. And she did 12 lemonade stands and one lemonade stand. Uh, it was raining and her mom said, you can come in. She's like, no, I'm out. I'm out here in the rain. Ugh. And then for her last lemonade stand, she convinced a local band to perform on the sidewalk so that she could attract <laughs> lemonade buyers. So you just hear these unbelievable stories. You know, 89-year-olds donating their birthdays, um, realizing that, you know, they have lived twice as long. As, as the life expectancy in so many of these countries because of the privilege that they were born into. And if we can donate our birthdays for clean water so more people actually can have more birthdays and, and live um, healthier and more productive lives, you know, all of this has just been incredibly inspiring. Our friend Cubby, you know, shaved his beard yep. uh, and raised a bunch of money, you know, and, and, and then, you know, grew it back. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks a lot better now, too. <laughs> What are your hopes for this book? What are what's the impact that you want to see come from releasing Thirst into the world? There are a couple things. Uh, I would love to just inspire people who maybe like me feel trapped. Maybe uh, maybe they are chasing the things that are not bringing them happiness. You know, maybe they are trapped in a selfish cycle. And I would hope that you know my story might show a. Um, chances are you're better off than I am. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, as you read this, I mean, it's, it's even worse than yeah. you might imagine. Uh-huh. Uh, so if, if there's hope for me, there is definitely <laughs> hope for you. And it's never too late. And then, you know, I really believe you can walk away from it. I mean, there's this, this I really believe, like, you know, in my worldview, I believe God can redeem anything and just completely restore it. I mean, you can, so I, I think I would just hope that might encourage people. I mean, every once in a while I'll come off a stage and, and a parent will take me aside and say, you know, I've got a kid like you who's doing drugs and, you know, and, and I, I just, I, my heart breaks for them. And I'm like, keep praying and, you know, and, and don't lose hope yeah. because had you seen me, you know, imagine, Gosh, 12 years ago, you'd run into me in a club over a plate of cocaine and, you know, I've smoked my third pack and I'm off my face. And, you know, someone says that guy's going to raise a third of a billion dollars and get eight million people clean water, <laughs> you know, through a charity he's going to start. You'd be like, <laughs> I mean, it'd be the most ridiculous. Yeah. Thought. So I would hope that might just inspire some people. And then. You know, there's a lot of stuff for social entrepreneurs. Just take the Charity Water Playbook. Mm -hmm. um, I would hope that I was taking notes as I was reading it. As somebody who is starting or who's running a business and trying to grow it and, and hitting walls where I'm like, oh, my gosh, are we going to be able to make it to the next yep. year or what? And, and you and went we were there. That. We went through yeah. all that. So just hopefully those tools and that might just be encouraging and people could say, oh, my gosh, I can totally do that thing they did and apply it yep. to either my business or 
my social startup. And then I'd love for people to get excited about water. I mean, I really yep. try and make the case for this thing that we don't think about, that we that we do take for granted. And hopefully this will, will spread the movement. You know, I donated the advance to Charity Water. All the proceeds go to Charity Water. I hope this book actually will help save lives and get people clean water. And, uh, you know, I, I hope it just goes out there in the world and and does good. I, uh, I really I really think it will. I just thought of this one last thing, and maybe can we end on this note, and then I know you've got to go. Um, what's that quote from that rabbi that yeah, you wrapped yeah, up with yeah. in Atlanta? Because I felt so encouraged leaving that conversation. Yeah. So uh, somebody was was going by, a, uh, actually saw him last night, a guy who lives in Nashville um, who used to work with me. And he sent me this picture from uh, outside a bodega a decade ago in New York. And it's it was this quote that says, do not be afraid of work that has no end. And it's from an old rabbinic text. Do not be afraid of work that has no end. And I didn't understand it then. And now that I've been at this, you know, 11 years, that's really how I look at the mission or the calling. When we solve the water crisis, so when we do see that day when everyone on earth has clean water, it doesn't end there. Right? We're not going to just drop the mic and say, we did it. Let's go get rich. Let's go work at Facebook or a bank or, you know, let's become millionaires. We'll really hopefully take everything that we've learned in the pursuit of clean water and generosity and building a movement. And we'll focus that on another form of human suffering. We might take hunger. We might take shelter. We might take a justice issue and take our expertise, our team, our community, and say, hey, we did that. We did clean water. Let's not stop there. Let's keep going, right? Because there are people suffering over here. So uh, I think if your pursuit is is really uh, an unselfish pursuit, if it's considering others better than yourself, if it's giving of your time and your talent and your money to improve people's lives, to end needless suffering, then it's a never-ending work. And I think... I've just embraced that and it actually becomes this really cool thing. Like I'm, you know, it, it almost reminds me of that scene at the end of Schindler's List where um, Oscar Schindler kind of has some jewelry or a watch or something left. And he says, like, I could have sold this too, right? I could have mm. done more. And I think if you, if you embrace a pursuit like that, you get to look behind and look at all of the people he did save. Right. And, and had he been content with a number and said, okay, I got there. I did it. You know, had we, let's say our milestone was we wanted to help 5 million people, right? And we got to 5 million and said we did it. Well, then, you know, now we're at 8.2 million. And this year we're going to be close to 9.5 million. And I think that's just, it feels like a really healthy idea to embrace. So I've loved it. Man, I Do love Do not that. be afraid of work that has no end. Wow, Scott's transparency and passion for global impact is, it's just the coolest thing. Uh, Isn't Scott the best? No matter how many times I've heard it, I will never stop being inspired by his personal story of redemption and second chances and the transformative power within all of us to make a difference. He truly is a personal hero of mine. One of my favorite lines from this conversation that Scott shared, he said, I would love to inspire people who feel trapped. I hope that my story reminds others that it's never too late. If you're not already following Scott on social media, you absolutely should. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Scott Harrison. 
And make sure that you definitely follow along with Charity Water online at charitywater and charitywater.org so that you can become a part of the impactful work that they're doing around the world. My wife and I donate to Charity Water every single month. And uh, if you feel so compelled, you absolutely should too. Scott's newest book, Thirst, is now available for purchase online or at any local bookstore. And I know I already said this earlier, but it was such a wonderful read and full of stories that I had never quite heard before from Scott. So whether you've been a fan of Scott for a long time or you're a new fan, you know, you've got to jump on it. And another incentive to get Scott's book, 100% of Scott's net proceeds from the sale of Thirst will fund charity water projects around the world. I love that. If that's not enough incentive to buy this book, then I don't know what else is going to do the trick. Check out thirstbook.com. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you enjoyed this episode, you'd also love my conversations with Sean Eskinosi of Eskinosi Chocolates and Allie Nelson of Allie Makes Things. These are two people with incredibly unique stories of how they got where they are, just like Scott. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you hit subscribe to keep on getting more inspiring stories with incredible people delivered to your phone while you sleep. And for those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michaels Navely and the team at CM Studio Edit makes the show, and Christy Karenbrock offers production support. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at goodgoodgoodco. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better. It's called The Good Newspaper, and we actually just released our newest issue uh, in the last month. Issue 5 holds pages and pages and pages of stories that are full of real, messy hope. It's not cheesy stuff. It's meaningful. It's deep, and you should definitely check it out. You can learn more about The Good Newspaper and what else we do at Good 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 at goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week. And remember that it's never too late for your story. It isn't over yet. Good things are ahead. Sound good?